Hello, hello. It's great to see you. Um, a number of us have been away for a while. We were at the um, World Conference for Every Nation in Cape Town. We had an amazing time. I think there was a little over 30 of us from the church were there, which was uh, just really special. We did a little bit of sightseeing and then attended the conference. And then our family, about 14 of us, got to spend another week with some, uh, with some family friends. And so it was great being there, but I missed being here. And it's great to be back. And wow, you can just sense the presence of God uh, here today. And it's uh, incredibly special. As you know, if you've been here for a little bit, we're going through a series. And we're trying to combine two things. We're going through something called the Beatitudes. And it's Jesus's kind of... Uh, perhaps most condensed presentation of what his message was about. It's in Matthew chapter 5. And what we're trying to do is sync up this core teaching of Christianity and see it as a pathway out of addictions and into freedom. And I have found this to be personally just a, a, a very, very helpful way to think that Jesus wasn't just listing kind of a bunch of good ideas. He was actually providing a way out of bondage and slavery into the life that he provides. We've been defining addictions as an anxiety disorder. This might be a, a, an interesting or strange way for you maybe to think about it, but as I've read the literature, I find this to be a very helpful way to think that what an addiction is, is a way to manage our anxiety outside of faith and love. Instead of trusting in God, choosing the way of love, we try to manage our life in the way what it ends up looking like is living an addictive life, turning to things that try to help us cope, but actually take us farther away from Jesus in healthy relationships. God gives us a promise in Isaiah 61, verse 1, that I think captures what he hopes to give all of us. It says, the Lord has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. And so this is what we are trying to go through and understand what does it actually look like to experience freedom from the things that, uh, that enslave us. We're on step number five. If there is such a thing, I don't know if it can be divided up so neatly, but we began by looking at humility. The only way into freedom is to admit we have a problem. And then we talked about grief and how we need to uh, uh, experience how our addictions have actually separated us from God and others. We talked about trust, and that's the foundation for freedom. And then we also looked at goodness, that it isn't just about us getting free, it's about being able to love and care for others. Today, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and this is what it says. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So we're going to be talking about mercy today, and I hope that this will be helpful for you. Forgiveness is at the core of the Christian message. If you were to summarize what Christianity is about, I would say at the very core of it is the forgiveness of Jesus through his death and resurrection. Now, uh, it seems to me that when I observe our society... Forgiveness seems to be less and less interesting for people. Not super, it's like, yeah, I mean, thanks. But it doesn't seem to really strike us or be that relevant, except perhaps learning to forgive ourselves. That seems to be a big, uh, a big value. 
But the idea of needing to be forgiven, that we've done something so wrong that Jesus would need to die for our sins, just seems like a strange idea, and that maybe God is overreacting just a touch. Um, So why does the Bible emphasize forgiveness as much as it does? I'd like to walk you through a little bit of a journey that I hope will be helpful for you, but it begins with this idea that the reason why forgiveness is such a big deal in the Bible is because of this idea of guilt. That we have actively broken relationship with God and others, and it's our fault. We've done things that have violated a healthy relationship with God and other people, and we live under a cloud of guilt. Uh, To try to describe this, I don't know if any of you know the Peanuts cartoon. Well, uh, this is one of the, uh, this is Pigpen. And Pigpen, he lives in perpetual dirt. And wherever he goes, there's a little cloud of dirt around him all the time. And, And this is kind of how he lives his life. Now, when I think about guilt, I think that it is like a cloud around us. But here's the challenge. With Pigpen, you can see that it's just dirt, and dirt's uh, easy, to, easy to see. But guilt seems to be something that uh, is kind of a vague uh, feeling that we can't really quite grab hold of, but maybe we have a sense that maybe there's something wrong, maybe we're somehow disconnected. Ah, whatever. It's just too hard to imagine. But Uh, What if guilt is way more motivating than we might initially suppose? What if you and I are really motivated by guilt a lot? Now, I don't think about that. I think about what, you know, what motivates me. And I don't think that I walk around feeling guilty. I mean, sure, if I've done something that's really obviously wrong, I might feel that. But I'll be thinking more like topics like maybe self-esteem or wanting to connect. Or I don't think of myself as being motivated by guilt. And I don't know if this is true for you, but do you, do you know the role that guilt plays in how you live your life. I think it's much more profound than we like to think it is. And it's hard for us to connect the dots between this idea of guilt and the daily decisions that we make. We do talk about self-esteem, having a positive self-image. We don't want to be insecure. Maybe those things kind of hint at it. But guilt is a fact. It's not just a feeling. And it says that we've done things that have violated a relationship. And the relationship has been stained because of it. And it affects us as much as it affects those that we've hurt. First God and then others. To help us be able to maybe recognize guilt in our life, I'd like to describe some of the signs of guilt that's in our life. So if we think about Genesis chapter 3, which is the first 
It records the first sin ever committed in humanity. What we see after they sinned is they did a number of things. And I'll talk about that and then kind of add to it a little bit. But the first thing that we notice in Genesis 3 is that they hide. So if we uh, find it difficult to connect with God or others, we just withdraw. You know, we have lots of children, and so we've watched them deal with their guilt doing this, where they'll do something bad and then run in a corner as if that has done anything. But somehow it feels safer over there than it does being with everybody else. But we do that. So what we might say is God feels distant. I don't know how to connect with him. He seems super tricky to kind of picture or grab hold of. And I don't know why, I just feel distant. Well, biblically, the reason for distance is not so much that he's hard to see or discover or be with, is that we actually have guilt that separates us and that we hide from him and don't really want to be close or be known for fear of finding out just how messed up we really are. Another sign of guilt is blame. We see this again in Genesis 3, where God um, confronts Adam and Eve and they start pointing fingers. It's his fault, it's her fault, it's the devil's fault, it's somebody's fault, just not mine. And so if you like me, find it difficult to receive correction and kind of when something happens, we think about how other people or their circumstances are to blame. I don't know, I was just innocent, I'm trying my best, and it was, it, it was just this circumstance that set me off, and it's not really my fault because I didn't ask for that circumstance. And so we kind of have this blame orientation in life that makes it hard for wrongdoing to stick on us. Blame is a sign that guilt is motivating our life. Another one that seems almost opposite to this is the idea of boasting. You see, if we do something wrong, we don't like thinking about ourselves as being evil or doing wrong things. And so what we'll do is we'll go, yeah, I know, but anyways, look at what I've done over here. Look how I helped an old lady across the street and I gave $5 to a homeless person. Let's just dwell on the positive things. Don't you think that's a better idea? And so we'll focus on the things that we do well as a way to compensate for either ignoring or minimizing or even justifying the things that we've done wrong. We lie. We try to say, you know what? Uh, I, I, I didn't do that or I didn't mean to do that. Stuff like that. Uh, one sign of, of guilt that is very profound is the idea of self-loathing. I remember a particular period in my life uh, as a teenager and young man where I was living an addicted life and I remember repeating over and over in my head, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate who I am and felt absolutely helpless and powerless to be able to change anything. I just knew there was something broken and there were, I felt like there was nothing that I could do about it. The Bible might describe it as condemnation, where we just have this vague feeling that we're bad. But surely a negative feeling can never be a good thing and so we just try to stuff it or ignore it. But it keeps popping up now and then and it feels like self-loathing. And so what do we do in the face of this? Well, another sign is we self-medicate. 
We take up a new hobby, uh, earn another degree, find a better job. We try to distract ourselves from having to pause and be quiet and look inside because that's not enjoyable. And so we'll self-medicate. And finally, we use others to feel better about ourselves, to, uh, to distract ourselves, and that maybe somebody will tell us that we really are uh, you know, a good person and so not to be so hard on ourselves. Here's what's interesting about this description of where guilt takes us. We hide, blame, boast, lie, self-loathe, self-medicate, and use. This is the exact same description of what addictions are. Uh, Somebody who lives an addictive life hides. I remember uh, Debbie and I lived in a basement suite where the the owner was uh, was an alcoholic. And I remember when we moved into the place, we just found liquor in a fridge and in a top shelf. And in a, they're just hiding things for when they need them, where his wife can't find them. But, but an addictive life hides and blames and boasts, but then tries to self-medicate and loathes themselves, becomes a user. What if the word that is popular in our society called addiction, what if addiction is really actually an expression of guilt? This is an interesting thought to me. Perhaps addictions are attempts to manage guilt outside of God's mercy. Think of the things that you're addicted to, the things that are really hard for you to give up, the things that define you outside of the love of God. What if the reason why we turn to those things is that we're trying to manage our guilt without humbling ourselves and needing God's mercy? You see, I prefer to describe myself as having an addiction than actually being guilty of sin. That feels better to me. An addiction is, well, it's a disease and it's not really my fault and it mostly has to do with my upbringing, so it's kind of slightly detached from me. And I prefer to describe something as an addiction as opposed to an expression of guilt because guilt suggests something about me that I don't really want people to know and I don't even want to admit about myself. Where I think... Perhaps the most um, powerful addiction that may be tied to guilt, or at least you can clearly see the connection, would be self-harm. Where self-harm is somehow, in some strange way, a way to not just self-medicate, but pay. Somehow, I'm, I'm, I'm paying for my evil through harming myself. I can't imagine how I could be forgiven. And so I have to pay for my own sin in my own ways. And maybe it might bring me relief, but it never seems to. That's an addiction that might reveal how all addictions are coping mechanisms 
to deal with our guilt outside of needing mercy. So if the Bible suggests guilt as being a primary motivation, what if mercy liberates us from our bondage and slavery? You see, when I'm addicted to things, I assume that the way out is gritting my teeth and trying harder. I just didn't try hard enough. I just wasn't sincere enough. And so I need to buckle down and really mean it this time. Really be self-disciplined. And I think that that's getting me out. That's going to be a pathway out of guilt and shame. But what if the way out is to experience the love and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, freely given, liberating you from a life of guilt and shame, reinstating you in a relationship that's not built on your performance, but built on the kindness and generosity of God. What if this would be our way out? Love. In Mark, my devotions these days are in, in Mark, and in, I was reading yesterday in Mark 5, verse 19. If you've read the Bible, you'll be familiar with the story of what's described as the Gerasene demoniac. You want to talk about a person who was enslaved. Uh, I don't think anybody can compete with this guy. This guy uh, ran around naked in the tombs, and nobody could control him. He was thoroughly in bondage. They would try to shackle him, to control him, and he would actually break chains under demonic power. That's called slavery uh, in the most ultimate of ways. He meets Jesus. Jesus sets him free. He wants to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, I want you to go instead and tell your people what God has done for you. And this is the phrase, and tell them how God had mercy on you. Mercy. Not some just power. He, God had mercy on you. And mercy set him free from slavery. Do you, do you think, now think about your, what, what you are addicted to, or are at least tempted to be addicted to. Don't you find it to be a hard sell that mercy would deliver you from that? Mercy? No, no, no. Hard work delivers me. Self-acceptance delivers me. But mercy delivering me from addiction. Imagine the Lower East Side. Mercy is going to heal that? Mercy. Fascinating. But there's something about the power of forgiveness that liberates us from the bondage of self and the need to prove something. Yesterday, I took uh, my son to his soccer game. Really fun. I love watching him play soccer. And there was a really, uh, there was a, a person uh, standing beside me who was giving a running commentary on the game. He's super, his son wasn't even playing in the game. He just shows up to a kid's soccer game. To, anyways, so, uh, so he's giving a running commentary on the, uh, on the soccer game. And then we begin to have a conversation. And it turns out 
uh, really nice guy, uh, and he turns out that he's a Muslim, and uh, you know, I told him that I was a, a Christian. He found that super interesting, and so we engaged in a conversation. It was really enjoyable. He says, uh, this is a very good conversation. He says, it must be good that you would distract me from the game. Um, <clears throat> but he, uh, but anyways, so we're, so we're talking, and you know how when you first start a relationship with somebody, you're looking for common ground. And so that's what we were doing. You know, we both talked about how important humility is and how we need to be, you know, open-minded and listen to other people with a fresh way and not just be judgmental, stuff like that. And then he talked about how Jesus was a really good prophet and we should all follow his example. And we're, we're just building a relationship. And so then I asked him, I says, how do you think we become righteous? Do we become righteous and good through justice or mercy? What do you think? And he goes, I don't know, I... I haven't thought about that. And so we, we talked a little bit more about the power of mercy. And so we're having this, this great conversation and then his face changed. And he says, yeah, mercy, but there are times when you need to fight for justice and stand up for your rights. And his face changed back again to a normal face. I thought, oh. This isn't about a discussion of two different kinds of religion. This is a discussion about whether the foundation of our life is fighting for justice or relying on mercy. I was so struck by that. And the, we, we talked about how Muhammad looked at, uh, um, looked at Christians before he started his... Uh, campaign, shall we say, and was unimpressed with the level of righteousness that he saw in Christians, and so decided instead a perhaps more forceful way to bring about righteousness. I think we do that all the time to ourselves and others. Be good. Be good. And we look at mercy and we go, I don't know if that's enough. I don't know if that could change me or anybody else. Let's just fight for justice again. But I would like to present to you that the only way we will ever find peace in our soul is through forgiveness. And the only way that forgiveness will ever be received is if we let ourselves recognize the guilt that is shaping so much of our lives and our relationships with others. So let's just drill down on that point. Why do you think we struggle with mercy? I mean, you just get to be forgiven. How could that ever be a hard thing? Why would we struggle with mercy? Well, it's just hard to face our sin, isn't it? It's hard to be wrong. It's hard to be wrong. There's a word for that, it's called pride. <laughs> but isn't it hard to be wrong? Even when you know that on the other side you're gonna get forgiven, it's hard to go through that valley that says what I did was wrong. It was wrong. 
So how then do we work that through? How do we let ourselves be wrong to receive the mercy of God? What's the journey that God would offer us that takes us on a road to freedom and liberation from self-loathing, self-harm, self-medicating, boasting, lying, deceiving, manipulating, blaming? How do we get free from that? Matthew 5 gives us a shocking way out. I'll read it again. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How do we, how do we receive the mercy of God? We give it away. What a... Like, really? Like, the way that you and I will experience the freedom of forgiveness is by forgiving others first. I find that to be absolutely radical. I never would have thought that that would be the way. I imagine somebody, maybe a whole group of you, going around and you're all going to give me a group hug and tell me that I'm special and that God really does forgive me, which I think would be helpful. But... uh, But really, what this verse says is something radically different. Uh, Forgive others. Here's what's true. Um, The proud don't forgive. The proud, they don't forgive. When we're proud, we say, how dare you insult me? How dare you hurt me? Do you know who I am? No, I'm not forgiving you. You don't deserve to be forgiven. Nobody treats me the way that you've treated me, and I'm not going to forget. That heart of unforgiveness closes the door on ever receiving forgiveness. And so God gives us such a practical way of receiving this cosmic forgiveness from him by giving us practical opportunities to work through the issue of forgiveness by learning how to forgive others. And in that journey, we find our own pride being challenged, our heart softened, recognizing that uh, We're no different than anybody else. We're not more special. And as we work that through, we discover ourselves being in a position in which we're able to receive the love of God that we've so desperately needed. So here's what I think. Um, Let me just just say one other thing, and then I'll conclude. Uh, What if... So imagine, you know, imagine somebody, um, some of you, you don't need to imagine, you, you can just picture faces of somebody who's abused you. And then imagine that person saying, why don't you just get over it? How would you feel? You'd feel violated all over again. 
You see, being sinned against and sinning can't be ignored. It changes us. And there is never enough justice to vindicate us and heal our souls. The only way out is through forgiveness. And as we work that through with others, we then are able to understand how we have violated God. And instead of being proud and defensive, we ask for his kindness. God then calls us to trade prideful coping mechanisms for mercy-based relationships. He calls us to trade our prideful coping mechanisms. I find that they're easier to see in others than to see in ourselves. But I feel, and I'm sure that you do too, like we live in a world that is just trying to manage its guilt and shame by posturing and looking important and driving a particular kind of car and bragging about this and minimizing this. It's addictive behavior. It's a, it's a slavery to defending our own honor. And God comes along and says, I can free you from that. I can liberate you from your self-consciousness, from your shame and embarrassment. Just admit you were wrong and I'll rush into those places with my kindness. I'll barely listen to you, but I just needed you to be open enough for me to bring my forgiveness into your heart. I think about... uh, I think about pornography in this regard, uh, which arguably would be the most popular addiction uh, these days. Uh, Sadly, uh, not just for men anymore, but also for women. Rivaled perhaps only by eating disorders. And I think about pornography as a coping mechanism, uh, being terrified of being known, trying to simulate intimacy, and then feeling even further estranged and guilty and ashamed afterwards. And Jesus heals pornography not by saying, shame on you for being such a bad person. He heals our addiction by offering a true and authentic and satisfying intimacy with him and liberates us, as he did the garrison demoniac, with his mercy, giving us what our hearts truly longed for, but was too terrified to receive and need.
What if all addictions are stealing away from us what our heart has desperately longed for? To be fully known, to be fully, can I say, exposed, and then to be forgiven in that place and embraced. Our addictions are destroying us and alienating us from the love of the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. And our answer is not self-loathing. Our answer is to humble ourselves and say, Father, my soul longs to be forgiven. I long to be known and accepted and I've dipped and dodged and avoided for far too long. And I'd like to come close. I'll tell you what addictions are for me these days. They are uh, signposts. We talk about signs of addiction, signs of guilt. Um, I haven't looked at pornography for decades. But every once in a while, the temptation comes up. And when that temptation comes up, I'll tell you how I receive it. I receive it as my father, I'm sure that devil's tempting me, but I receive it as my father tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you've wandered away from me again, haven't you? You've wandered away from your close relationships again. And you have now put yourself in a vulnerable position. Come home. My temptations are reminders for me to humble myself and to draw close to the mercy and kindness of God. Self-loathing will never deliver you from one addiction. The kindness of God leads us to repentance and doesn't just suppress a bad thing. He fills us with what our heart has always longed for. Can we be a community that is courageous enough to be wrong and humble enough to learn how to receive and give the forgiveness of God? Not as an excuse for sin, but as a freedom from its bondage. James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment and its guilt. Can we please admit that guilt has been motivating us far more than we would like to admit? Because as we do, we find a better way out of the judgment and pig pen cloud of condemnation that we live under. So let me ask you then, to whom are you to show mercy? 
don't start with yourself. To whom are you to show mercy? The Holy Spirit will show you now. And I promise you, it will be somebody who doesn't deserve to be shown mercy. But as you work through the injustice of that process, you will understand something of the Father that you will never understand otherwise. So to whom are you to show mercy to and forgive? And then lastly, have you received mercy? When was the last time you've experienced being forgiven? I don't know of a more powerful human experience than being forgiven. Will you let yourself be forgiven? It'll heal your soul. I've had the opportunity um, as a Christian, not just a pastor, of administering forgiveness. We can all do it. And I, I watch people's faces change and they can breathe. I'm finally forgiven. I'm free. I'm free of the weight of my sin, my, my coping mechanisms. I'm finally free and I can breathe. We're going to have people who would love to be able to administer God's forgiveness to you. You can turn to your neighbor. Don't let pride steal away from you mercy, giving it or receiving it. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I thank you for giving us true liberation. So many people are touting liberation messages, standing for our rights, fighting for justice, demanding dignity. And you come and die naked on a cross. and truly liberate our souls from the condemnation and judgment and self-righteousness that has been a cloud over our lives. So we ask that you would come, please. Set us free. Liberate us. Deliver us. Save us. We need to be saved today. I thank you for such a beautiful response to such horrendous sin. 
thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we invite your kindness into our hearts now.